if people walk around with this, you know, general idea of the intersection between you know, economic prosperity and, and the environment uh, as being competing, then people are going to side with their, their economic well-being a lot of the time. Welcome to Cooler Earth, a podcast where we talk with those seeking solutions to the climate crises. These are the people leading the movement to keep this planet a livable one, and they're doing so in ways that ensure equity and justice for all people, specifically those who have been at the front lines of this crisis and disproportionately affected by climate impacts. How has the coronavirus pandemic and the renewed mass calls for racial justice around the world impacted and changed the way we do climate work? That is a question that many of us have been asking ourselves and the guiding question behind this, the fourth season of Cooler Earth. Insights into human psychology have provided the climate movement with a wealth of information about how people interpret, process, and behave in regards to messaging and communication strategies. Matthew Goldberg has built his career on understanding the complexities of the human psyche and the role that social influence and ideology play in shaping individual beliefs, specifically as it relates to the climate crisis. In this episode, we talked with Dr. Matthew Goldberg about his work at Yale's program on climate change communication, his research on message persuasion and fossil fuel money in politics, and his insights into how we can better integrate knowledge of human psychology to strengthen support for climate action. Hello. Hello. Hi, Matthew. How are you? Doing very well. How's it going? Um, I'm doing well as well. Thank you so much for for joining us and for making the time to be here today. Thanks for having me. Um, so where remind me where are you based right now? Uh, so I'm in New Haven, uh, right right by Yale, so right off campus, and um, doing doing oh, cool. all right with the COVID restrictions and more students around. But I, I'm not really going anywhere, so I'm working from home most of the time. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's such a beautiful area. Um, had a friend go there, so I've been a few times, and it's so so beautiful, especially this time of year. Um, yeah. But I'm glad you've been able to work from home. It's definitely, For sure. I think, a relief. How are things going by you? Where are you based? Um, so I live in Boston, but I'm currently up in Vermont uh, with my in-laws. We came here a few months ago, trying to kind of get out of the city a little. Um, so it's been really nice as well. Um, uh-huh. still working from home, but enjoying a lot more space and nature, which has been lovely. Yes, really nice. Um, yeah, so just a little bit of background behind the podcast. This is our fourth season now. We've actually had one of your colleagues um, on season three last year, John Kotcher. Um, so he joined us on the podcast and a lot of it has been focused around um, the social science aspect and this issue around what have we gotten wrong in how we communicate climate change and the climate crisis and what can we learn to do better um, as we go forward. So you are our perfect guest. So I'm very excited. So glad. Yeah. Excited to be here. Um, 
Do you want to start by telling us a little bit about your background um, and how you got into this field initially? Absolutely. Uh, so my background is in social psychology. Uh, do we Should we go before then or do we start at uh, school? Um, I'd love to hear about why, why you were interested to get in, into social psychology to begin with. Yeah, so, so going way back to, um, I'd say, high school or potentially earlier, um, my, my whole life was sports. So I was, I was uh, playing football and wrestling, and uh, my main interests in psychology were basically built on my desire to compete well and to get the most out of my training and to be able to mm-hmm. anticipate my opponents and stuff like that. So that mm-hmm. was kind of my, my initial interest in motivation and uh, human psychology. And as I got deeper into school, once I got to college, I started to hone in a little bit more on uh, specific topic areas. And I started to shop around within psychology. I knew I wanted to get a PhD, but I wasn't sure exactly what what I wanted to study. But then I at least decided on the subfield, which was social psychology. I was interested in persuasion and social influence and conformity and uh, stuff like that. And uh, so that led me to my PhD at the the CUNY Graduate Center at the City University of New York. And uh, that's where I started to look at persuasion and more specifically resistance to persuasion and uh, what people do to get around accepting uh, strong evidence against uh, their deeply held beliefs. And so I was interested in that from uh, from an applied standpoint, but especially the the theoretical implications of like what methods people use to resist persuasion and, and why does that matter for how we communicate. Uh, as I got later into my graduate career, I had, I, thinking, I was thinking a bit more about uh, the so what question. Well, why, why do we do all this research? Why should I spend my, my life's work on this? And that's where I uh, started at Yale uh, in 2018, where I was really starting to zoom in on uh, the application part of this research. Uh, and and given one of the most pressing issues of our time, climate change, uh, it seems like a, a natural match where uh, my expertise and my research on resistance to persuasion was especially important for looking at how to engage people with this issue. Uh, so I went through my postdoc for the past two years, and I recently, in, in June 2020, started my faculty position here at the Yale School of the Environment, and uh, the rest is history. Well, congratulations. Uh, I, for one, am a huge fan of the work um, that Yale is doing around this issue. And I think it's really pioneered the the very idea and the, and the crucial point that we really do need to understand the social science and behavioral aspect to this issue as well. Um, I think many of us in the field or historically had understood climate as an issue for natural sciences, right? Um, But the natural scientists are so way ahead, right? Like we know so much um, about the causes, the consequences, the projections um, about how climate change is happening and what we can expect. And then the other side of of the understanding that this is going to have to come from a deep society personal mindset change um, is what is really exciting to see happening now. Um, Can you tell us a little about the research that you're currently working on um, and what you're kind of most excited about? Yes. Uh, We've been focusing on a bunch of different subjects within the climate and clean energy space. Um, But one of the main questions that that's that's been preoccupying me for the past few months and that I plan to spend the coming years on is 
Uh, so we we have a good idea of the persuasive effects of of our messaging, um, but there's much less known on what leads to mm-hmm. enduring change. Uh, so of course, you know it, it's important mm-hmm. to move people in the moment, but if it doesn't stick, then uh, that creates other issues for us and. We want to be able to create this enduring change because the problem is certainly not getting better without substantive action. So I've been thinking a lot about what kinds of messaging and approaches lead to enduring change. We're finding some really interesting things, but uh, there's there's still so much unknown there. Um, but that's probably the the frontier of of uh, the open questions in this area that I'm most interested in. Definitely. And and for people who might not be familiar with how this research is conducted, can you tell us uh, behind like your research methods and how you even go about tackling some of these large, large questions? For sure. Uh, so at, at the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, we use a whole variety of methods. We're a very interdisciplinary group. Uh, mm-hmm. Much of our work is centered around the Climate Change in the American Mind project, which is a twice per year nationally representative survey that the center has been doing since 2008. Our most recent one was this past April. And so that sets the stage for a lot of what we do because it informs the the current state of affairs in the U.S. What, uh, how many what percentage of people believe climate change is happening, human cause, worried about it, which policies they support, and so on. And we look at the political differences and other demographic differences. So that that's a, a wealth of knowledge that we can always draw from. And, and then we take that information, and, uh, and along with other information in our greater environment, and uh, do experimental tests, so randomized controlled experiments, where we manipulate parts of a message, whether it be specific wording uh, or uh, an emphasis on particular values to match an audience or uh, a specific messenger. And uh, we try to optimize how to best communicate to various segments of the American public, whether it be based on politics or gender or their diet preferences. There are are a lot of different ways for us to, to split up the American public. And what we're trying to do is to gain new insights on how to keep moving the needle forward uh, to increase people's uh, personal beliefs that are more pro-climate, but also their policy support and ultimately how they vote. Right. And I think it's it's invaluable research and such a wealth of information. One of the things that I personally refer back to a lot is the global warming six Americas, right? And the way that the center has divided the, the, the American mind or the public not just into a binary or of do you believe in climate change, do you not? Do you support climate action, do you not? Like the the truth is a lot more nuanced. Um, And so in that vein, because I think that's a huge misconception that still a lot of people hold, right? That it's 50-50, you believe or you don't believe. What are some of the things that you have personally found the most surprising or that you wish more people would know um, about the research you've done? I think the biggest contribution in that space, or at least the most uh, surprising given uh, what is covered in this research space, is that people across the ideological and partisanship spectrum are are all movable. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, so looking at, so speaking of global warming, six Americas, uh, people that are doubtful or dismissive are still very movable on climate. Uh, it's just that we, 
you know, we're speaking to different audiences. And so a big misconception is that uh, it's kind of just perfectly split across partisanship lines. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, all Democrats are pro-climate and all Republicans are anti-climate. But there's so much variability, especially within the Republican Party. There are lots of Americans that vote Republican and but at the same time say that climate change is an important issue to them and that they find it personally important uh, and they're worried about it. And so those folks are movable. They're they're a, a segment of the population that we can engage. And hopefully it becomes more uh, normatively salient that there are people across the spectrum that care about this issue and want to take substantive action. Absolutely. Do you? So this is kind of where where I get stuck because the data shows this, right, that there are, in fact, a lot of Republicans who care about this issue and yet continue to vote Republican. So I wonder if if you have given any further thought about in, in application, does this do these findings mean that people are more likely to move away from the party or that the party itself is more likely to move into the understanding and embracing of climate solutions? I think the answer is largely unknown as to whether there people will resolve the tension by moving away from the party or the party will move towards uh, being more pro-climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some hints at it. I think the the divide in the Republican Party across uh, age lines is, is an important one. So young Republicans mm-hmm. are significantly more likely to care about climate change and, and want action on, on the issue. Uh, so that that could be foreshadowing for where the Republican Party is going. And I, I'd really hoped that's the case. Um, but a big one is that while there are a lot of Republicans that care about the issue and are worried about it, they're not, it's not something yet that they vote on. So looking mm-hmm. at our most recent uh, climate change in the American mind survey, we can see among uh, liberal Democrats, global warming is the second most important voting issue to them. And among moderate and conservative Democrats, it ranks ninth. But for for all types of Republicans, it doesn't even come close to the top 10. Uh, so there might be a lot of Republicans that care about it, but it's not something that they're voting on because at the moment, at least, other issues outweigh it. Got it. And on this idea and on this finding that people can, in fact, change their minds. You've written extensively about the role of individual relationships and friends and family becoming messengers and communicators of this issue to hopefully be able to sway, persuade, or move uh, certain people to, to care about the issue. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how you've seen it either change or actually play out? For sure. Uh, so some of this is inherently difficult to study because it's hard to experimentally manipulate what people's friends and family members think about the issue. But we can certainly get very mm-hmm. close in understanding how people differ based on what their friends and family members think. Uh, so we've published a bunch of work on this where we can see that there are massive differences between liberals and conservatives or Republicans and Democrats on the issue of climate when it comes to whether it's happening, human cause, worry, policy support, just across the board. Um, But once we look at, once we select among people who have friends and family that care about the issue, 
that that partisan ideological gap is substantially smaller and, and in, on some questions totally eliminated, uh, where you can see that there are Republicans and uh, conservative Republicans even that that care a lot about the issue. And uh, and that's among those that have friends and family that also care about it. Uh, ideally, we're we're headed towards being able to encourage people to talk to their friends and family about the issue where we can precisely measure that mm-hmm. that causal effect of of uh, people speaking up. And there's a lot of good reasons to believe it would be effective. Uh, close friends and family members are typically more influential in general than, uh, you know, a stranger or seeing an advertisement or something like that. So I think there's a, a lot of promising work that would suggest that that approach would be effective. Um, but I think a, a little bit more work needs to be done to understand just how scalable and uh, big of an impact it can have. Definitely, especially because, unfortunately, climate has become one of those issues that is like kind of lumped in with the quote unquote political issues that you're not meant to talk about um, with family or at the dinner table uh, because it's seen as, as contentious. And I think we are, we're recording this on the week of the latest confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court justice. And we, we saw that, right? We saw somebody um, respond that climate change is in fact a matter of, of public debate and public discourse. Um, so it's really fascinating and interesting. I'm curious to hear from you, what would be some tangible advice or ways for people listening who want to start having these conversations, but either don't know how to or want to learn what could be the most effective based on who they're speaking to? Yeah, I think there's a lot that we can pull from in the literature, especially on social psychology and political science that speaks to these uh, persuasive techniques. And just like being able to have mm-hmm. an open, non-judgmental conversation. Uh, so even though there isn't a lot of experimental work on this space uh, in, in terms of climate, we can learn from a lot of other studies that a few, few general points hold. Uh, so being a good listener is crucial. So being non-combative, uh, being just generally open and starting with a shared goal, especially if it's simple and easy to agree with, like anyone could agree with the idea that we shouldn't trash the only place we can live. Uh, so very mm-hmm. simple and, and straightforward. And starting with that that point of agreement, I think, is key. And sometimes, uh, depending on the specific ways that the other side might be misinformed on the issue can, can be helpful. Uh, so you can affirm some of those misconceptions before trying to convince away from them. So Catherine Hayhoe is fantastic at this where, uh, so a lot of people say the climate's always been changing. Uh, so therefore it's just like a natural phenomenon. And the way that she starts is, well, saying, affirming that belief that, uh, yeah, the climate has changed a lot throughout history, but this time it's it's much different. So it's a way to pivot away. It's, it's a way to acknowledge someone's belief or stance on something before pivoting away from it. And it's a way to, I, I think, reduce defensiveness because you're affirming something that either someone else values or just like a belief that they currently hold. So you don't want to open up with um, a direct contradiction, but rather you know, take it in stride and be able to have more of an open, non-judgmental conversation. 
Absolutely. And her TED Talk is absolutely brilliant. So we'll be sure to link it um, in the episode notes as well for people to kind of check that out. Um, Something I was thinking a lot of as I was preparing for this interview with you um, was the the difference between the conversations we're having with the people who are, like in that previous example, straight up denying the fact that climate change is human-caused and a result of burning fossil fuels versus the much, much larger group of people who understand that this is a problem and understand that it's man-made and yet maybe are not engaged in solutions yet or are contentious or still hesitant about certain policy solutions. Um, I'm curious to hear from you how you and the and the center square these two things and, and where you think the priorities for your research lie. Yeah, I think that the policy solution, so you have a lot of people that uh, are averse to specific policy solutions. So if you could imagine a stereotypical mm-hmm. anti-big government kind of group within the political right. So you can see that there would be natural resistance to things like carbon taxes and other approaches like that. Uh, But often people aren't getting into the nitty gritty policy details. So I I think that often uh, elite cues play often a bigger role than specific policy wordings and such, which, which does matter, but often not as big as when people look around, you know, they they um, identify with certain folks around them and with certain elected officials, and uh, they often follow their lead. So, I think raising the the profile of of elected officials, the, the Republican elected officials especially, to be able to signal uh, that that they are pro climate, that they're willing to take action on this issue. Um, but of course, this leaves out the important issue with uh, interest groups that will often punish elected officials by, you know, funding their primary challenger mm-hmm. or something like that. So it's it's definitely not without risk. Um, but I think we do need more conservative voices that are going to speak up on this because, again, the, the conversation should be about uh, how do we best solve this problem, not whether or not it is a problem. Right, absolutely. And I think we, we've de- definitely moved more towards that direction. Um, and the folks who perhaps still outright deny um, that this is an issue, it continues to shrink. As you say, though, and you have um, a research published on the very specific issue you just touched on, which is the ongoing influence of fossil fuels interests and the funding towards um, politicians, which ends up having this disproportionate representation in elected officials who continue to take these stances that are perhaps not representatives of the wider population stances. Um, Can you share some of those findings on on that study on why you think it's important for us to also take that into account in this conversation? For sure. There's, There's no doubt that interest groups have an enormous influence on climate politics. In our work, we were interested in the the more straightforward question of the kind of strategy, in this case, oil and gas companies are taking and who they donate to, uh, which which kinds of candidates they donate to. And we just we pose this question of uh, what we call influence versus investment. So in the case mm-hmm. of influence, you could imagine uh, an elected official getting a lot of contributions and then voting more against uh, environmental legislation later. 
and and the flip side would be investment where elected officials get into office and uh, vote consistently against the environment kind of as a signal and then uh, these companies invest in them later kind of like a, a prove it strategy where uh, certain elected officials prove themselves and the more that they do that and they show that uh, in real substance through their votes in Congress or in the Senate, uh, they they end up getting more campaign contributions later. Uh, so our study kind of pulled that, uh, that timing apart, showing that when people, when uh, legislators vote more against environmental legislation, they end up getting more campaign contributions later. And we can see now that that over over time, so our data was from uh, 1990 to 2018, we can see that uh, that proportion of money used to go, I think it was like 60, 40 or something in favor of Republicans. And now it's closer to 80, 20 or 90, 10. So much more of it is going to Republicans because over time we've become more polarized and that, that middle has kind of disappeared. And it's really shocking. I mean, the findings, both in terms of how much they've increased and then just how how direct the relationship is between negative votes on environmental policy and actual funding or contributions. I think, though, that might somehow be a good finding in the sense that voters, if we are able to pay more attention and be more engaged on how representatives are voting during their term, and then vote against that once their term is up. Um, that might be a, a, a positive thing that those in favor of climate action can also start seeing and acting on, not necessarily in terms of campaign contributions, but in terms of actual voting and voting folks out of office who don't represent the interests of the people. For sure. And I hope it's increasingly the case where we could strengthen our democracy enough to be able to hold elected officials to account based on the way that they voted while in office. I, I figured there's there's no other way that's as good as that, uh, where it's like, hey, if you're not going to represent us, then we will vote you out. Uh, we'll see if, if that ends up being the case over the next several years, but I, I certainly hope that the, the people make their power felt. Right, absolutely. Um, which brings us to talk about this year, right? This year, which feels like it's been like five years all in one, sure. uh, if not more, um, with the global pandemic and the economic crises and the calls for racial justice and the natural disasters and basically everything that's been happening in the zeitgeist as most of us are at home um, and kind of confined to our screens. Um, what if any, have you seen in terms of both the shifts in public opinion as they relate to climate and how you've perceived their their implications or their impact on this ongoing election that we currently have? Yeah, I think a big one is what, what I was saying earlier, where climate is increasingly becoming an issue people consider with uh, when they consider who, who to vote for. I mean, mm -hmm. just just a quick look at this year's primaries, you know, look, uh, looking at the climate proposals from then versus just four years ago, the, I think the difference is yeah. enormous. Uh, there is this pressure that if, if you're not going to be aggressive with your climate plan, then we don't want to hear from you uh, on the on the Democratic side. I hope, like I was saying, uh, young Republicans are increasingly concerned about climate. And I hope that that they move their party uh, in the right direction on the issue. 
Um, but I think that the only way to get elected officials or candidates running for office to care about what people think on the issue is if people actually let it decide their vote. Uh, so we're trying to make that happen. There are a lot of uh, organizations doing great work on this where they're locating people that are that are otherwise pro-climate and trying to get them to turn out. So I think the more that we can do that, the, the better, uh, the stronger the coalition will be. Right, absolutely. We actually had um, Nathaniel Stinnett from the Environmental Voter Project on the podcast just a few weeks ago, um, speaking about this and the need to mobilize people who already care about this issue so much and may otherwise sit out elections or not even show up um, to exercise the the power to vote. And the numbers are staggering. I mean, they make me so happy and hopeful to just see how much this issue is becoming a, a central issue, um, even if at times that is because of horrifying and horrific events that people are experiencing more and more. Um, Absolutely. One of, the, one of the other things that's changed starkly since 2016 to now is the media. Um, media coverage, both around the election, but also in general, in terms of how we are making connections between the climate crises and the ongoing wildfires. I mean, we saw the, the term climate change on the front pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post, um, center stage at the presidential debates, which was shocking considering what happened last time around. Um, I'm curious how your research, if at all, intersects with the media and how the media is also either influencing, impacting, or diverging from popular opinion and beliefs around the climate crisis. For sure. There's the the effect of media is so important, especially in just just agenda setting, whether we end up mm -hmm. talking about it or not, and, and how they cover it is, is just huge for setting the stage on how the issue is framed. Uh, so over, over decades, the media was clinging to this like false balance narrative where, well, mm -hmm. we need to give climate deniers an equal voice because we don't want to come off as biased. And we can see the consequences of that where, you know, the public responds to it. If it seems like a debate, then people see it like it's 50-50 when it's really nowhere near 50-50. Just look, just thinking about the scientific consensus, nearly 100% of climate scientists are, uh, are screaming at the top of their lungs saying it's real, it's us, it's bad, and we need to do something now. Uh, so I think the, the media plays a huge role in that. Um, and speaking to our, our specific work, uh, so looking at our research on the Green New Deal, we observed partisan polarization over four months that that was just mind blowing looking at mm -hmm. when where barely anyone knew about what the green new deal was. And we just described, uh, you know, just it's, it's basic components, Republicans and Democrats alike read that and, and were like, wow, this, this sounds great. And then, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of top news outlets are, are hammering it endlessly. And we saw that among Fox news viewers, they even stood out compared to other Republicans that don't watch Fox News. And we can see how influential uh, media outlets like that are when they spend so much of their airtime uh, bashing the Green New Deal. And we can see that they even covered it more often than MSNBC and other major outlets like CNN. And so we can see the power that that kind of media has on public opinion. Right. And it's it's so stark. And I think there's been so much 
research and, and kind of a robust amount of, of insights into how specifically cable news, most specifically Fox News, has had on on persuading people, right? Specifically people who just watch um, Fox News or kind of get into this this trap of buying into the a lot of the times fear mongering around policies that would otherwise perhaps not even be as widely discussed or talked about. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, what is what are some things that you wish or you hoped that the media would be doing better given your background and, and what you know about persuasion and human psychology and everything we know about climate communication? For sure. I think the biggest one is using plain language. We could even mm. see that happening in the debates, um, just even in critiquing uh, how uh, Kamala Harris responded to Mike Pence in the vice presidential debates. There was a lot of opportunities to speak in plain language, uh, but instead there were there were some cases where she, you know, spoke of carbon emissions and going net zero, where most people don't know what that means. And mm -hmm. so staying away from the jargon that a lot of people in the climate movement are fully prepared to talk about, but that doesn't right. describe most Americans. So I think using plain language is probably one of the most powerful tools in our toolbox where it's like, hey, let's stop polluting the planet. Let's have clean air and water. It's it's abundantly clear when you frame it that way. Even just speaking to just the enormous havoc that fossil fuels cause on on human health. And that's something that we've seen in our surveys. P Americans are becoming increasingly aware of that. And I think that's that's due in part to so many practitioners really stepping their game up and framing this just as a plain, uh, you know, human rights thing and just a human health issue. And by expanding the breadth of the issue and making it very relatable, uh, you know, people can really, it really resonates with people rather than thinking about polar bears and ice melting. Uh, people instead think about uh, the destruction of of just their their backyards and uh, it, it hitting really more close to home. Absolutely, and it's so refreshing and so brilliant to see um, some of these people really leading on climate communications, getting it right, and just resonating with people without the use of overly complicated, complex language that is hard to engage with, and it's also very hard to understand when the bottom line and the impacts and consequences of the issues really don't need to be um, complicated or hard. Um, what, what are some of the things that you have seen change the most since you began doing this research up until today in terms of the trends, the shifts, and the changes in perception um, around the climate issue? I think a Big one is, and, and I don't know what degree this is or compared to other things mm -hmm. that have changed, but I think the acknowledgement that this is going to be a complex discussion when it comes to policy, there's going to have to be give and take and also um, the desire to build coalitions. And this discussion around who's too far gone to be able to team up with versus you know, you don't want to alienate someone who is very close to you ideologically just because they they disagree with you a little bit. And you kind of see this a lot in the going from the 2016 election to now 2020, where you're seeing folks like Joe Biden adopt a really aggressive climate plan. So I think that's 
that's changed dramatically where, mm-hmm. you know, and by so many definitions, Biden is a centrist or in, in on many scales, center right, uh, at least outside the U.S. So in thinking about this coalition building, there are people, especially in the Democratic Party, that are kind of willing to write anyone off because of disagreements, sometimes major disagreements, but we shouldn't alienate uh, otherwise allies um, in in this climate fight. So I think being able to get a better sense of who might be beneficial, uh, beneficial ally is going to be key because ultimately this is about political power. And yes, uh, individual action is also crucial. Um, but uh, ultimately, to solve this problem, we're going to need, you know, large scale policy change. Definitely. Um, and something that we've talked about in the podcast this year a lot is the intersectionality of issues. Um, so as you're saying, building coalitions and reaching across to understand who we have aligned goals and incentives with. And something that comes up a lot, as it should, is the intersectionality between racial justice and climate justice in terms of the overlap of the folks who are on the front lines and the receiving end of oppression on both instances, and also the need to kind of change the mindset into how we view these as separate lanes, right? I'm working towards fixing the climate crisis, or I'm working for racial justice in America, when in reality, that work is is very much aligned in so many ways. Um, I'm curious to hear from you how you perceive in terms of overlapping priorities or issue priorities versus a broader understanding of the intersectionality of these issues themselves. I think the intersectionality of the issue is essential. Because yes, there are there are large proportions of Americans that care about the issue of climate change passionately, but it's not the only issue that's at the top of their mind. So I think it is it's mm-hmm. a smart move strategically, um, but also it 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 shows greater awareness as to how intertwined climate issues are with issues of racial justice, for example. We know that the impacts are are not evenly distributed. They're, they're disproportionately in, in communities of color. And to, to ignore that would be an injustice in itself. And it would also be a, a, a strategic mishap as well, because to the extent that you can overlap pe- uh, people's uh, passions for one issue with another issue, you can better connect mm-hmm. uh, the coalitions and, and find more allies. So I think uh, there's there's so much opportunity to be able to uh, embrace the intersectionality of the issue. It's an economic problem. It's a moral problem. It's a religious problem. It's a racial justice problem. And to the extent that we can diversify those climate voices, and I think there have been fantastic efforts at doing that by a number of organizations. And I think the more that we do that, the more opportunities we have for people to identify with the issue. Absolutely. Um, and it's been brilliant to see that happen this year so much, both in terms of a huge reckoning within the environmental movement and understanding where the blind spots had been historically, um, and then also a, a larger call for system change more generally that addresses all of the issues that we currently face. Um, 
you mentioned your current research at the beginning of the interview, but I wanted to go back because I found it absolutely fascinating. And I meaning the leveraging social science to generate lasting engagement on climate. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how you distill these levers that you think we can pull on, on social norms and mental models to to generate this lasting change that we need at the individual and community level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for this paper, it was a perspective piece. So it is uh, myself and my two colleagues, uh, Abel Gustafson and Sander Vanderlinden, trying to distill just some major points for us to focus on. So this was by no means a a fully comprehensive review of the literature. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, It's just so massive. Um, but we did zoom in on those three pieces uh, that that we call deep engagement, general mental models, and social norms. And so I'll I'll go over each one. So for deep engagement, I think this is important to emphasize because not all kinds of engagement are of the same depth. So if you think about mm-hmm. scrolling past an advertisement on on Facebook, that that has been shown in many cases can be effective in influencing what people believe about climate and other issues. Um, But it's not as deep as having a conversation with a friend or family member or even a stranger knocking on your door. There's fantastic work on deep canvassing where people are knocking on doors trying to speak about important issues that that are are close to their hearts. And uh, so, so we review some of that research on deep canvassing where people engage in these non-judgmental conversations and they're able to move people on on issues that uh, people normally expect that are not very malleable, like uh, you know, people's beliefs and feelings about transgender individuals or on racial prejudice. And it turns out that these, these interventions are really effective. So we put a lot of in, uh, emphasis on this idea of deep engagement because we don't want to overlook the fact that a lot of interventions focus on just one-shot deals, and we want to think more for the long game because ultimately that's what this issue is. We, um, you know, if we're going mm-hmm. to make progress, we can't afford to lose it. So uh, this focus on enduring change is important. Uh, moving to uh, general mental models, uh, this is based on the idea of, of grand narratives that there are just certain ideas that stick around and that are like that tend to be barriers long-term and they can be applied pretty broadly. So there are a bunch that we point to in the paper, but one that that I think has been especially harmful is that there's this myth of a environment versus economy trade-off. And if people walk around with this, you know, general idea of the intersection between right. you know, economic prosperity and, and the environment uh, as being competing, then People are going to side with their their economic well-being a lot of the time, even though when, when we do ask that question, most Americans are uh, prioritize the environment, at least on the abstract level. But once it's framed as competing, that's especially harmful. So when we talk about general mental models, we think about these big ideas that end up influencing a lot of different attitudes and values. And if we can do our best to to counteract some of these especially harmful ones like the economy versus environment trade-off, then I think we can make progress because then we can kind of break that mold and and try to create a new one. So one way that I like to describe it to combat that one is that no economy functions well when people are dying. No, No economy functions well when entire cities are flooding. 
Uh, so right. being able to to frame it that way is, is a nice way to counteract it. And uh, so moving to social norms, I think this is one of the key ones because people most of the time, even scientists, rely on other people for their information. Like most information that we consume or nearly all of it is is consumed secondhand. So even when you do primary research, you're still relying on others to some degree uh, for, for that information. So th that's why social norms are so powerful, because they're especially powerful in cases where people rely on others uh, to inform their own beliefs and actions. And there's a huge history of work on this, whether it be on recycling or any other environmental behavior, saving energy and so on where social norms have been shown to be an important impact, even just from very minor interventions, saying what most people in your neighborhood do or what most people in that hotel room have done, uh, you know, saving water and uh, reusing towels and stuff like that, mm -hmm. where social norms could be a powerful, very simple lever to pull uh, to try and generate action. So I think, and so in our paper, we, we frame it more as an open question as to whether repeatedly emphasizing social norms ends up sticking a bit better than like a one-time intervention. I think that's, um, there's some good evidence for that, but I think there's still a lot of open questions on, on the issue. Absolutely. Um, and these are so, so valuable. And I think all of us who either work on this issue or care about this issue have so much to learn um, from everything you are researching and finding. So it's truly invaluable uh, and I appreciate it greatly. Um, Another question I have for you is, and we've seen this more and more permeate the conversation, which is this idea of individual action versus systemic change and systemic progress and, and, and kind of, yeah, shifts. Um, how do you and, and the center perceive this dichotomy? I think at this point, it's wi widely understood that individual action alone, and by that I mean me conserving water, conserving energy, recycling, is not going to be enough, even at scale, to solve this issue. Um, so how do you see the attitudes or beliefs towards those two different forms of climate action? For sure. I, I think you're exactly right that uh, individual action is not nearly enough and um, there needs to be substantial focus on, on large scale systems change. Um, but often that happens at the demand of people. Uh, so mm -hmm. particularly in, in the U.S., it's, it's going to take a lot of pressure to hold politicians to account. Uh, even ones that are speaking very positively on climate solutions They're, they're not perfect, and they will be susceptible to influence the pressures of, of various interest groups, and um, especially when they're pouring huge amounts of money into fighting climate action. Um, but ultimately, the, the power of the people needs to uh, help demand that this action gets put into place. Uh, so I think while individual, individual behavior change isn't nearly enough, It, it can it can make a, a non-trivial impact, no doubt. Um, but the the interplay between this public demand and legislative action uh, shouldn't be ignored either. Absolutely. Um, and I think it, it is also very true that the more you care about an issue or engage about an issue, the more likely you're going to be to actually go out and take political action, whether that be voting or deeper action, canvassing, getting engaged, um, 
or even running for certain office um, at a certain point. So that's certainly something that that I see as a, as a huge lever, specifically within youth um, and young people right now, kind of on the front lines of this movement. Um, for sure. And our research does focus a bit on on that kind of behavior change as well, where we're asking people if they're contacting their elected officials, if they're running mm-hmm. for office, or if they're part of committees. And th- there are all kinds of questions that we ask, uh, that we've asked over the years that tries to gauge this uh, opinion leadership, because ultimately it's, it's not going to be every single American reading up on the issue. There's going to be a lot of social influence. And I think, uh, harnessing the power of the people that all are already on point on this issue uh, to, to try and uh, grow that coalition to the point where it's just too difficult to overcome where uh, major action will be inevitable. Absolutely. Um, and that's that's all we can hope for, I guess. Um, in closing, I'd love to hear from you. Um, what What do you see as the future that you are working for if we get this right and if we are able to succeed, what does that future look like? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to imagine right now because we have <laughs> so much work to do, but um, certainly moving fully to a clean energy economy where we have this, uh, this huge growth in jobs in, in the clean energy industry. Uh, we see the decline of, of reliance on fossil fuels. And, uh, and ultimately, and some of this has been shown through the pandemic, what, what life can be like when we are, are less uh, dominated by cars. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have, a, and, you, and you have places around the world that are doing this beautifully, where there's so much more green space and walking space and biking space. And uh, so, so I, I guess I'm somewhat imagining a, a green utopia, even though I realize that if and when we do pass major climate legislation and start to make uh, huge progress, it's still going to be an ongoing battle um, because there there are going to be people that or or organizations or companies that are are interested in uh, they they are in this conflict of their products being bad for the environment, yet mm-hmm. they have a financial incentive to. Uh, to stick with those products. So I, I don't see it as going away completely anytime soon. I certainly hope that our work can be good enough uh, with the broader climate movement uh, to help accelerate this change. But I, I sincerely hope that, that we can get there uh, right away. Definitely. And, and there's certainly huge amounts of work to be done, um, which is both exciting and at times very overwhelming, um, I think. Um, Matthew, final, final question. And I just have to ask, did your studies and knowledge in psychology ever end up helping you, um, in your pursuit of sports? Yes, I think so. (laughs) Um, well, it's, it's amazing. So this actually had come up because, uh, in 2018, well, it, it goes back a little bit further, but starting in 2018, I started to do these really intense Spartan races so I did those oh, throughout wow. 2017, but in 2018, I started to do ultra distance racing. So this is on the order of over 30 miles, 10,000 feet of elevation, 66 obstacles. Like it's, so the, that race took me almost 13 hours to complete. Oh my God. And um, about halfway through, so I've been so interested in pushing myself and expanding my limits my whole life. And um, halfway through that race, 
I was just done, so depleted, on the ground for a half hour, couldn't eat, couldn't continue. And you're in this transition area where you can like uh, switch out your bag, refuel your water, eat a little something, mm-hmm. and then continue the race. And I was just done. And um, but I almost it was almost an out of body experience where I was like observing myself wanting to quit. And and it was I was so close to just because I could just like cut my my race bracelet off and just be done right there. Right. And I was in, I was kind of like in an external way observing my uh, my thoughts of where my mind went. And you would think it would be focused on the pain and the, <laughs> like the rest of the the race, but actually it was it was almost entirely social in nature. It's like. Well, what is what is my partner going to think of me? What's my brother going to think of me? What's my dad going to think right. of me? What's my mother going to think of me if I quit? And uh, so, yeah, psychology has taught me a lot about my my own performance and just even how to manage my my day to day life. But it it still doesn't uh, fully help getting around my own biases. I still am defensive to information I don't want to accept, mm. just like anyone else, and have a lot of uh, biases that, that everyone else has, but, but certainly having this, uh, deeper understanding over the years has definitely helped at least understand, uh, you know, why we behave the way we do. And, and, and it's been really fun to, to have that as a guiding force as I do interesting, uh, athletic feats. That's so fascinating. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And, and also for the last bit, I think it's so important to recognize that even, at the top of your field or at the top of, of your knowledge attainment, it can still be difficult um, to unlearn and un- understand some of these things that are so deeply ingrained within us. And that's a pursuit we all must um, continue to engage on. Absolutely. The work never ends. <laughs> well, Matthew, thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time today. Uh, it's been a blast getting to know you and, and to talk to you. Cooler Earth is made by Amanda Griffiths, Christian Morris, and me, Maria Virginia Olano, and it's a project of Climate Exchange. To learn more about the work we do, go to climateexchange.org. That is C-L-I-M-A-T-E dash X-C-H-A-N-G-E org. And if you want to financially support our work, you can either donate to our website directly or go to carbonraffle.org to learn more about our largest annual fundraiser. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all stay safe and healthy. Until next time, 